Welcome to Podagogies, a teaching and learning podcast. I'm Chelsea Jones. And I'm Curtis Maloli. We're recording from our homes in Southern Ontario, Canada. I'm currently in Toronto, which is Treaty 13 territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation and also the Dish with One Spoon territory. And I'm also recording from Treaty 3, which is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people, and also subject to the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. Today, we're talking about bringing kinship into the classroom, and then taking it further into the wider institution and into the community. And we're also going to talk about the value of making mistakes. Dr. Robin Bourgeois is a mixed-race Cree woman whose family comes from Treaty 8, Lesser Slave Lake Territory. She is the Acting Vice Provost of Indigenous Engagement at Brock University and an Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies. Welcome, Dr. Bourgeois. Aw, thank you for having me. So when we first had the opportunity to meet and speak together, um, you spoke at length about the importance of how you bring heart into your teaching, uh, and you characterized your role as an instructor as akin to being an auntie. Can you share a bit about uh, what it means for you to, to bring heart into the classroom in that way? Sure. And I have to start by saying that it comes sort of innately because as Cree people, we are heart-centered people. That is really how we we operate in the world and if you talk to my most beloved elder she reminds me that all the time because I have a big heart it also means it gets hurt a lot it's very soft sometimes right but she's like that's it that's because we're Cree people so that part of being a Cree person means that I bring that into almost everything I do uh you know uh sometimes when I have to debate somebody that I'll you know where it's going to be tough I will put that heart into a little bit of a like a protection but mostly I I just let it go and so to me that extends to teaching I think that's really critical and so it means a few things I love the characterization of it being like an indigenous auntie because in our culture I'm going to say in a lot of indigenous cultures aunties are like a really critical core character that many of us value and a role that many of us value in fact I've also just learned I have some colleagues who are saying that this is in Chinese culture is really strong in aunties and there are other groups of people where aunties are key so I really love that But for Indigenous folks in particular, aunties are a really important role because they're not your mom, right? And because when you're a parent, there's a whole other set of things you have to do and responsible and you have to be the grown up all the time and you have little kids to raise or whatever, right? But an auntie gets to do those things, but doesn't have that same level of responsibility. So an auntie is someone who will, you know, has your back is the person you can go to when you want to chat about things that you're, you don't really want to tell your mom about <laughs> is someone who is really kind, who really cares, but will also like call you on your BS, right? And say, hey, well, maybe that's not so good, right? And so that is really kind of how I approach teaching. I, I want to be the auntie for my students. When I look back at the teachers who really influenced me throughout university, and even, I will say even before that, high school, elementary school, it was people who had that same energy, right? That were there, that had my back, that were kind to me, that, you know, when I'm crying, because, you know, I've been up all night writing my last paper, (laughs) and they're like, it's okay, you know what, if you need time, take a breath. I think that's really a valuable role that we don't see in post-secondary institutions a lot because a lot of us you know are raised in a culture of 
academia that it's like, no, we are professors and we are proper and we are all about the education. We don't, you know, have relationships with our students in any kind of friendship capacity. We aren't kind and generous. <laughs> like, it just, I don't know. I see a lot of that in academia and I'm the absolute opposite. I want to be the one touch point for my students that if there is only one kind person in their day, then I hope it's me because I think that's so valuable. I've been reflecting on this for a long time because I was influenced by a book I read really early on about how difficult it is for people to learn when they are experiencing trauma or have experienced trauma. I mean, trauma can be anything. It could be abuse, it could be neglect, but it can also be like the violence of the classroom, right? And I just thought, why do I want to contribute to that? Why wouldn't I be kind? Why wouldn't I be generous with my students? Why wouldn't I be this heart-centered person that I am in my life with my students? When I got into being a professor, I was like, I'm not going to pretend to be something I'm not. I'm not going to be like, I'm going to be proper and all of those things. I was like, no, I'm going to be heart-centered Robin and I'm going to be true and authentic with my students and in my approach to teaching. And so that's really what it is about for me is it's about teaching in a way that is caring for people, even when I'm like destroying their worlds by, you know, teaching them about the horrors of colonialism or disrupting their beliefs about white supremacy. I'm still kind and caring when I do that. And, you know, I, a sense of humor is really critical here. You know, I like to laugh more than most people do, I'm sure. And I like to bring that into everything. You know, that's what it means to be a heart-centered person is the just absolute joy in everything you do. And so that's how I am as a professor. I, and I can't imagine being any other way. You know, it's interesting because emerging out of the or I don't even know if we're emerging, but, you know, we spent a couple of years uh, in a pandemic. And, and I really saw that with a lot of the instructors, both that we spoke to on this podcast and more generally that worked with our center, that, you know, a lot of professors were reflecting on the importance of kindness and bringing, you know, a bit more of a heart-centered approach, maybe not in uh, the same way that you do, but but it was it was more prevalent. I wonder, though, since this is such an intentional part of who you are in the classroom and how you bring yourself to the class. Uh, does it extend to things like assignments? Do you think of assignments differently because of that? Oh, absolutely. You know, when I came in to being an instructor, I'd only seen like, I mean, basically I had seen what my instructors had done and I did a lot of reflection. And, and when I originally came in, I did a lot of replication of things that I had seen done, but I was like, you know what, none of these actually fit. And so what I found over my career is that I've got less and less rigid about assignments and I create more and more options for students. So I will write, you know, a, a midterm take home assignment. That's what I call them. I don't give exams. I totally disagree with the whole exam system, but I will give assignments that mix creativity. So people have the option to make art or do podcasts or make videos, or I've even had students who've done ceremony as part of an assignment. I also give standard assignments so that folks who um, like to write essays or, or thinking about going into academia who want to hone those skills also can do that. But I try to push students to really not just memorize stuff. That's not what I want people to do. I want them to apply the stuff they're learning. So I'm always trying to come up with creative ways to get people thinking outside of the box. This is actually, I think you'll appreciate this story. First kind of few months after the pandemic and we all went into lockdown, 
I was teaching a land-based class and all of a sudden I couldn't teach this land-based class because we were all virtual. So I was like, how do I evolve this? How do I give that same experience and mobilize people? Like I know people's attention spans were short. I mean, I hardly read a single book during the pandemic. So I knew what people were going through and I was like, okay, what can I do that's different? So I got them to still do assignments where they went out on the land and I got them to document their learning using photographs on their phone because everybody has a phone. And then they could either write up a little description or they could orally explain what was going on. Part of the kindness is recognizing that we don't all learn in the same way and we don't all express knowledge in the same way. And so I really like to find opportunities to give students the, their best shot at doing their best work. And for some, that means writing a paper. For others, that means doing something creative. I love seeing students come into that, especially my favorites actually are the ones who are like, they've only ever written papers. And then they get this opportunity to be creative. And they're at first they're like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm a little freaked out. I'm a little scared. They come with lots of office visits and then they blossom. And it's the most magical thing to see ever. So that's kind of how it shapes assignments for me. The kindness also comes in the submission of those assignments, right? I am the most understanding professor I think that I can be. And I basically tell my students, you know what? I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't need to know. If you come to me and you say, you know what, Robin, I have stuff going on. I just need a few extra days. That doesn't hurt me to say, of course, take it. Because I think those little acts of kindness help students be successful. And yeah, you know what? I have the odd student who asks for an extension and then it ends up that they never submit anything. But that's like one in several hundred. Uh, most of the time students are just so grateful and it used to be the case that students would come and talk to me a lot, especially because when they know my history and how open I am, they felt comfortable to come and say to me, well, you know what, you know, I'm going through X, Y, or Z. And I've got to the point now where I'm like, you don't even have to explain to me. You just have to say to me, you know what, I need a little bit more time to do my best work. We'll make that happen. I think that's a little act of kindness that can change people's lives because not all of us are going through the same things. And I remember being a student and, you know, I wasn't a privileged student who, you know, was having my education paid for. I was working three jobs just to get through university. I was dealing with trauma from having been trafficked. You know, I was dealing with all kinds of things and those little gifts helped me get to the point where I am today. So who would I be as a professor? What a hypocrite I would be if I didn't extend that same kindness to my students. And it really makes a difference. I, I have watched students who were on the brink of leaving university just because of that little act of generosity, they were able to finish their degrees and it changes lives. So I think that's really important about assignments as well. It's not just about what you assign, it's about how generous you can be in you know, giving people space to do the work they need to do. What you're saying about assignment design, the evolution of assignment design in your career, even to the point where you're thinking about the evolution of submission standards, like, and what does it mean to have students back when they're trying to, you know, get through an assignment? Like that flexibility seems so important to me. It makes me think about the ways in which I know you 
expand your pedagogy or maybe extend your pedagogy into community because you know we've talked about this in the past you and I understanding that students students don't exist on an island they're part of something bigger than themselves they're part of community and one of the ways um, that I had an opportunity to get to know you was through something called the decolonial reading circle which you ran at Brock and it, it reached into community a year or two ago and I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit more about that. What does it mean to take this heart-centered pedagogy and stretch it further than the classroom? I love it. I love that question so much. Growing up as an Indigenous person, I mean, you are always reminded that, yes, you're an individual, but at the end of the day, you're at a community. And I've always been reminded that I have an ethical responsibility to community, always. And so to me, it's always really important that whatever I do extends not just in the classroom. I'm a professor. I'm happy to do that. But I, I really believe in the power of public education. I think that changes things. It's funny I, I, that we're having this conversation because I just finished reading Leanne Simpson and Robin Maynard's new book, Rehearsals for Living. And Robin Maynard makes a really good point about the importance of public education and how critical that is in movement building and really changing the world. And so, yeah, you know what? I have the privilege to be at a university and teach young folks, which I try to do to change the world, <laughs> of course. But what kind of human being would I be if I didn't extend that to community as well? You know, I have gifts. I'm able to teach. I'm able to, you know, work with groups, facilitate all of those things. So why don't I invite community to be part of these discussions? That's really critical to me. And so that's why the decolonial reading circle came to be is I wanted to open the space of the university. I mean, that's part of it, but I will say the first reason the decolonial reading circle came to be is because, you know, having participated in the national inquiry, having studied for my academic career, at least up to this point, every chance that Indigenous people have gone and participated in things like this, and seeing that that report was going to sit on a shelf, I was like, no, nope, that's not how this is going to go. Actually, I had been influenced really clearly by something I had heard on the radio, funny enough. I was in Vancouver when the report dropped, the final report. During my trip, we were listening to the radio in the car, and I heard this great discussion about how a group at SFU had created a reading group to read a report that had been issued by women in the downtown east side and I was like that's it I was like we are going to do this at Brock and so I really it was important to me that if I was going to do this of course I wanted students to be involved but students get to have access to me when they take classes I wanted staff to be involved I wanted faculty be involved, but I also want a community to be involved because that opens a whole other level of discussion. And it actually ended up creating some incredible magic. That's how I met Fallon Farinacci, who is a survivor. Her family has a, a history with missing and murdered Indigenous folks. And she came <laughs> during the first round and I, once we connected, she ended up leading the next round with me because the discussion was so incredible. But that's what's really important. You know, what's the point of having our knowledge and having the ability to teach folks or communicate knowledge, right, really, if we don't use it with everybody? Academia is such an elite group at the end of the day. How many of us can afford to go to university? So why not open it to community? That's the benefit. I'm of the mindset, actually, that education should be a human right. I think that's where I would lean towards. But 
in the absence of that, how do we create spaces within the academy where the public feels like they can be involved, where community feels like they can be involved? That was important to me. That was that was why the DRC was so critical. And it's actually going to come back. Oh, is it? Yeah, I decided after a year off that I'm ready and I have the energy to do it again because I've recently actually, after having a, a brain injury and I couldn't uh, be on digital devices, I started right. to read again. <laughs> And there's so many incredible discussions happening. And I think what I found during the pandemic, especially with my students, for example, I had a class this last semester, Indigenous Feminisms. I threw out most of the curriculum and we literally just talked about things that were going on because they, Mm. they needed a space to start to process things like what was happening during the pandemic. What about the Freedom Convoy? How Kanye West is responding to Kim Kardashian was a discussion we had and bringing it back into what the course was. So it's clear to me that people really want to have these kinds of conversations together with other folks. So it's time for the DRC to come back so that we have a collective space to read and think critically, particularly about Indigenous voices. So I'm looking forward to it. I've got a lineup in my head of folks that I really want to come and join us. So that's going to continue because I, I really do think the power of that group is opening new spaces of education for folks who might not necessarily have access. One of the things I really appreciated about that group, because I I attended a couple of the meetings and it was during lockdown, so they were all virtual. And I remember you saying very clearly and right at sort of the top of things, um, saying, you know, we're going to see pets and children, et cetera, et cetera. And you were saying in my communities, difficult conversations that we're going to have about missing and murdered Indigenous folks, we have with everyone. Everyone is welcome. That struck me as so different than what we usually get in these uh, higher education spaces where truly only certain people are invited, right? Only certain people have access. So that struck me as as really significant. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? It's other than the fact that that is how it happens in our communities. Like if we're having an event, there's kids there, there's pets there, there's everybody. Like, and it's a wonderful, magical kind of environment. But I really resist the idea that we can't have difficult conversations around kids. That's a really important point for me. And I'll tell you why. Every once in a while, somebody will say to me, well, we can't teach little kids about missing and murdered Indigenous women, or we can't, my favorite one is, we can't teach little kids about residential school. And I, I, I pause and I say, okay, but my kids are, you know, 10, 8, and 4. And we've had to have these discussions because we are Indigenous. So, you know, my kids have sat and watched. I remember um, my ex-husband and I were watching Indian Horse and we're bawling. We are literally just bawling because we both have family members who went to residential school. And my kids at the time would have been, you know, probably uh, seven and six. And we had to explain to them, you know, this is why we're crying. This is what this is about. I think it's important to have those conversations and to start as early as possible. Yeah, you know what? I probably don't want my kids like to have you know, I have my own story of being trafficked and all of that. And I've been very careful in how much I share with my kids, you know, like I don't share the gory details with them, but they've always known little pieces that something bad happened to mom. And here's why I just had to actually advance the discussion a little more with them lately because they've got digital phones now and they've developed relationships or are starting to connect with people online. So then I've had to say, okay, well now you need to know part of this story and this, you know, mommy met somebody online and really bad things happened to her. So you need to be really careful and you don't meet anybody. And if somebody says, Hey, we want to meet up, I'm going with you and I'm going to check them out. And you're not like, 
no, no, no. Right. So I think we have to have those conversations. And as Cree people, we're told that when a kid asks, they're ready to know. So I think that's important. And we have to normalize these kinds of discussions because for those of us who are being targeted, for example, as Indigenous people, they're happening in our houses. So they should be happening in everybody's houses. And I think that's the way we get to change is that, you know, we expose young people to these hard topics from the start. I was kind of getting pessimistic a little bit, but the more I'm engaging with young people, like young people, like even my 10 year old right now, you know, who has come out as trans during the pandemic, who has become really vocal about racism, colonialism, all of those things. It's because we've started young. It's because we're having these conversations and they're learning from the start that these things are wrong, right? And I think that's really important. And I think we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't just have elite spaces of conversation. That's not how the world changes. It changes through having dialogue with each other wherever we're at and meeting people where we're at. And that's what I think is really important about the DRC. And if people are listening and wondering, you know, what does that conversation look like? You weren't coming in to a conversation where Robin's given a lecture and we're like, I'm using words like hegemony and you know, all of those things. We had like, we're sitting here having a coffee and we're going to talk about this stuff and we're going to explain things and we're going to like learn from each other like I love collective learning I think that's such a beautiful thing um, and dialoguing and meeting people where they're at because you don't need a PhD to have these kinds of conversations you just need a willingness to learn and engage and most importantly make mistakes I, uh, that's one of my favorite things to say to people because I do I am seeing that people are so scared to make a mistake that they're they're like, I can't do anything. Like they're paralyzed. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Guess what? Mistakes are the best learning you can ever have. So guess what? We're human. We all mess up every single day. Come and at least be part of the discussion. You know what? If you slip up, somebody's going to say, you know what? That wasn't okay. And then you just say, okay, I'm really sorry. And you do better. That's it, right? It's not a scary thing. I remember actually, I think Chelsea, you had said you had participated in some kind of training with Robin around land acknowledgements. That's um, right. About making mistakes or something like that. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, you're remembering that right. I did a land acknowledgement workshop with you, Robin. And one of the first things that you taught everyone in this workshop was to go ahead and make mistakes. Um, and what you're saying right now is reminding me of all of this. And can you can you say a little bit more about the value that you find in, I'm going to call it mistake-driven pedagogy? Maybe that's not what you yeah. call it. Yeah. And you know what? I will tell you, this was an individual development that happened over my lifetime. Because when I was growing up, I was taught that mistakes weren't necessarily a good thing. I And so I became very much, when I was growing up, like as a kid, I was a perfectionist, almost to the point that it was paralyzing. But if I was going to do everything, I was going to do it the right way. And I was going to do it perfect. And then I got to a point where I'd be like, I wouldn't try new things because I didn't want to mess up. Right. So I was like, wait, this is so impractical, the stress of it all the time. And I just was like, this is ridiculous. I'm human. And I need to remember that. And people, I mean, lots of people in my life would say that to me, like, when I come home and I'd be bawling because I got to be in math. <laughs> family, you know, some members of my family would be like, Robin, what is wrong with you? And so I've embraced making mistakes because I think, you know what, guess what? We, it's the best learning ever. You learn so much more from a mistake than you ever do from getting things right. 
you, you know, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Sometimes you're embarrassed. Yep. Totally. But those mistakes change you. And, you know, I, for me, it's like, what's the point? Like if you make a mistake and you don't learn something from it, then what was the point? But if you take that mistake and you're like, okay, this is an opportunity for me to learn something new to adapt how I'm behaving to be in many ways it, to me, it's about being a better person, a better human in this world, then I make mistakes. And you know what? I'm a human being. We all do it every day. You know, I'm sure I do it like a million times a day. And instead of feeling bad or putting pressure on myself to be perfect, I now love those moments. And you know what? When some, you know, somebody calls me out, I'm like, thank you. I really appreciate that because maybe I didn't, in most instances, I, I find this with lots of people. They just don't know. And so, you know, jumping on them and being like, you're a horrible human being isn't helpful, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's having this beautiful moment. It actually just happened. I This beautiful moment that happened. And it, for me, it's a model of how to approach a mistake. But um, my kids ha had met a member of my partner's family for the first time. And so um, she was, you know, getting to know them. And she said, oh, um, how are you girls? Because my, my two boys have long hair. And they said, no, we're not, we're boys. And so this included my trans son and my cisgender son, who has long hair. And so this person went into the back or into the kitchen and was asking, you know, what's going on? I'm, I'm confused. I don't know what's going on here. And so we explained, you know, so it's two boys. That person walked back into the room and said, I'm really sorry. I made a mistake. I didn't know. And I'm, I know now and I will do better. And I was like, that's it. That's exactly how this should work. Right. With these things, you make a mistake, you acknowledge it and you go and you do better. And I think that's a beautiful gift we can give each other. And it's that kindness again, right? It's one of the issues I have a little bit with call-out culture. I agree that we have to name white supremacy and colonialism and heteropatriarchy and all of those things. But most of the time when I'm with people, the mistakes are not because they're intentionally being that way. It's that they don't know better. And so if I can play a little role in being kind and saying, yeah, you know what, you shouldn't use that word and here's why, you know, explain, I think that can change things. I think people come along for the journey of change when they're made to feel like they'll be valued and not harassed and, you know, necessarily, you know, called out in a hostile way. And yeah, you know what, sometimes it does have to happen, but in general, it's about being kind to people and saying, you know what? that's not cool. And here's why, but it's all part of making mistakes. And that's what I want. Really. I really want people to reflect on that because some of us don't have the luxury of saying, Oh my gosh, I don't want to make a mistake. So I'm not going to do anything. Some of us have to keep fighting every single day because if we don't, we're going to die. Our children are going to die. The world is going to die. Right? So get over it make a mistake. It's wonderful. It's a beautiful human experience. And we're too hard on each other and ourselves for those things. You know, be kind. You have to extend that to yourself as well.
I, you know, I'm also reflecting on the kind of larger role that you've been playing at your institution as, um, as acting vice provost of indigenous engagement and kind of leading the institution through a process of, and again, you know, what do we call it? Of decolonization, of, of indigenization. There's a lot of different terms that, that go around with it. But I'm wondering, like, you know, I'm sure you know, Ryerson has been recently renamed Toronto Metropolitan University. And this is actually our first podcast since that name change. And for listeners that don't know the context, the name change was influenced in large part by the advocacy of Indigenous students, faculty, staff, as well as allies across the campus, you know, who, who wanted to, um, didn't want to study in the shadow of somebody who played such a, a big role in the development of residential schools. So I'm wondering, you know, you're at Brock University, you're going through this process, you're leading this process of decolonization. What does it look like there? What is the kind of change that you're trying to lead in your institution uh, when you use these words like decolonization? Yeah, that's a that's a big, huge question. <laughs> it is a huge question, but I mean, like, you know, you're talking about making mistakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think for some folks at Brock, I feel for them, like, I think they feel me as a trickster because I'm literally up in the world just like messing stuff up. <laughs> I, I hope they knew what they were doing when they chose somebody who is an activist. I mean, I, I literally have my roots in activism. Actually, if you talk to my mom, she'll be like, I always was an activist, but that means change. <laughs> I have a great story for you. I have um, a beloved Cree elder. She is everything to me. And she does this incredible teaching that explains that there's four different leadership styles. It's organized around the medicine wheel. And everybody has a dominant leadership style, but ideally you need to balance all of them. So there are four animals that represent these leaders. One is an eagle and an eagle leader is like a type A who's like, I can see the big picture. We're going after stuff. Then there's the dog people and dog people, their leadership style is more like relationships. So they're like, you know, let's be friends. You know how dogs are, right? And they're loving and caring. Every trait has its bad sides, right? Because then a dog, think about what dogs do. If you neglect them, they're going to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to chew your shoe. (laughs) And then there is the mice people and mice people, they're all about data. They prefer to be behind the scenes. They don't want to be out. And when I did this study and I participated in it multiple times, every time it gets more and more skewed, I am a raven and an absolute raven. Like there are no other dominant. I am a raven. And the way she explains a raven leader Her favorite line is when Raven comes to town, magic happens because Ravens are about change. Ravens are about, you know, they usually have big personalities, which is true to four for me. They're willing to walk the walk of change. They are like, you know what? Just because we've done things the same way all this time doesn't mean they have to keep this way. And change is one of my favorite things. I just love being part of change. But it it can feel like destabilizing for people, right? To be around someone who's like, why does it have to be this way? We can change things, right? So it's been an interesting journey. I I never dreamed of being an administrator, to be honest with you. I got into this gig to be a professor. That's what I always wanted to do. But to have the opportunity to help walk the university through change, I couldn't pass that up because I thought at the end of the day, like, because I, I was asked, right, our VP had left and they were like, we need somebody to fill in until we can recruit. Will you do this? How do I not heed that call, right? I saw it as a great opportunity and I felt that Brock was in a place 
where they had committed to this because it was part of our strategic commitment. And I was like, okay, so if I've got the strap plan behind me and I've got senior admin behind me and I've got a lot of faculty and students and staff who are committed to this, I think we can make magic happen. And so that's been critical. It's not without its challenges. Of course, I've weathered some pretty horrible stuff you know, whether it be harassment on uh, social media to being the subject of multiple articles that have not been very pleasant, but we've done some incredible things. We have made changes that I don't, I never thought would be possible, like getting a cluster hire, getting commitment to have dedicated funding. We didn't have a dedicated budget line to Indigenous initiatives at the university. We now do. You know, commitment to creating new spaces. Um, We have our first Indigenous education uh, curriculum specialist, which was a recommendation that was issued at Senate in 2015. We have been able to do things that the university has been dreaming of. Have I made mistakes? Oh my God, yes. I'm sure I have, you know. It's tough to balance relationships. You know, a senior admin position is really strange because in some worlds, you've gone to the dark side. <laughs> you have responsibilities. I've gotten in trouble quite a bit because I'm, you know, I tend to just say what's on my mind. And then somebody will be like, oh, I don't know if you should have posted that on social media. But that's who I am. And at the end of the day, they want me for me or they don't. You know, it's been fascinating to be part of a journey to help Brock be a better place. Do we have more to do? Oh, yeah. And I actually, I've applied to do this job permanently because I really do think we could do some magic together. And at the end of the day, it'll be up to the committee to decide whether it's my magic they want or not. But we have to do something. Like, that's where we're at. You know, we know Indigenous people want access to universities. We're exploring new options. I'm really excited right now. We're working on a a new kind of... um, I hate bridging. I hate that word, like a transitional year programming that we're going to develop particularly for Indigenous students. And it was actually came out of a request from a local group, a shelter. And they were saying, you know what, some of our people, they don't have their high school or they did their high school years ago and they're not sure they want to try this out. So we're looking at creating a program to create that accessibility to come into university. You know, we're doing better things to support our students. I just think we can do so much more. Dr. Bouchot, I thank you so much for joining us today and for telling us about your pedagogy and how it reaches so many people in the classroom, in the institution, in the community, and how you do this by taking on these multiple roles of anti-activist, raven, sharing your magic in whatever ways. Come along. Thank you so much for the conversation. It's been great chatting with you today. Thank you. We don't get these opportunities very often to sit and actually talk about, you know, our pedagogical practice. So thank you for creating this space where we can have these conversations. It's been great speaking with you. Speaking of magic, I want to thank the person behind the scenes right now, our instructional technologist, Sally Goldberg-Powell, who works with me at the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at uh, Toronto Met. And a shout out to Brock University's Center for Pedagogical Innovation, who's also been supporting our podcast. It's been great speaking with you and look forward to our next conversation.